Jesus, you are Sing, O church, arise. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain.
please remain standing for the reading of God's word. His inerrant, infallible, authoritative, perfect word, we stand in honor as we read. We'll be reading today from Romans chapter 5, and we'll start in verses 18 to 21. So you may join with me, opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, 18 to 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you may be seated. So this is a time where we have our ministry moment, and today we have a special gift, a special um, visit from Ted and Kaylin Offit here in the flesh, and they're going to give us a quick update of what they've been doing in the world. They're supported missionaries of our church, and uh, let me hand over to Ted. All right. Thank you. Yeah, we are, Ken and I are on staff with Encompass World Partners, and we work in training and also in overseeing church planting around the world for Encompass. So first I want to say, we want to say thank you guys very much. Um, you, we were able to partner with you, and it's really uh, an incredible privilege to partner with you to spread the name and the fame of our wonderful Lord Jesus around the world. So you may not know that, but you are doing that. And, uh, and so, but instead of boring you guys with some of the details of what we do, I thought kind of giving an example might be helpful. And uh, so we probably are paying attention to what's happening in the Ukraine um, right now, unless you're dead. Um, and uh, so it's pretty, tra it's awful, tra it's tragic, right? It's awful. And, but not too long ago, there were, the news was all about Afghanistan. And it's still awful, by the way, there too. And so the, the, the example is this, just this morning before the first service, uh, Kayla and I were actually able to join a commissioning uh, via uh, Zoom of a, a couple from our, a family from our church who's actually going to Turkey to work with Afghan rev uh, refugees in that country. There are about 300 Afghan refugees in the country of Turkey, and most of them are in Istanbul, and that's where they're going. And so they're actually going to, to, to share Christ with those, in, those Afghans in Turkey. And the, the reason why it's a good example is because, because what we do, and by extension what you do, is we were able to do the training for them before they go. We'll be overseeing and mentoring them while they're there, and we're also overseeing the church planting team that is there. So it's kind of an example of what's going on. And I'll say this, is that you, every time you have one of you know, us missionary folks stand up here, you have to realize that they are an extension of what you're doing, and your impact uh, is actually even far greater than what you're seeing locally. So we are super thankful. So that's God's design, is that we have a supporting church here that supports our missionaries that God sends there. So we are just as much as part of the evangelism in the world as the offits are. And that's what he's saying there. Um, so let's go ahead and, and join together in prayer. We'll pray for the office. We'll pray for Ukraine and Russia and the things going on in the world. So join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we are humbled by your magnificence and power. We come before you today to worship you in the study of your word and in songs that magnify your name and remind us of your holiness. 
we humbly come together to approach your throne, the throne of grace in confidence from the, through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, to confess our sins and repent of our wayward hearts. In you alone we find our hope and joy in the cleansing of sin. Search our hearts now and bring to our minds our sins to confess before you that we will be moved by the presence of your Holy Spirit to be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your mercy, for your grace on us in the gift that you give us through Jesus, through his obedience going to the cross and being the sacrifice for our sin that demonstrates your great love for us by dying on the cross in our place to satisfy the judgment of our sin. Thank you that you have removed the bondage of sin and death, that we are free to seek after you, to love you, and to love one another. We pray for your continued work in the lives, in our lives to grow in Christ, to proclaim the gospel, and to make disciples, and to serve your church. We pray for the situation in Russia and Ukraine. We pray for the churches there to be strengthened and provided for for the many opportunities for the gospel to go out and give hope to the many displaced people, for the churches in Romania as well, and for those that are taking in refugees in the name of Christ to be provided for and strengthened to do your work. We pray for Ted and, and Kaylin as they continue to serve you in training missionaries for the work of the gospel and directing church planting efforts in different areas of the world. We pray for your work now in our hearts and our minds as we participate in the preaching and teaching of your word through Pastor Mike, that our hearts and minds would be made ready for your transforming work and power of truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord, his, his mercy is
glorious and holy, and yet, Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for sinful people to be reconciled to you through Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we pray that this morning you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word and help us to not only hear it, but also to be doers of your word, Lord. God, we love you. We pray that you would be glorified this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And I'll just tell you, we have a truckload of truth to unload today. And speaking of trucks, uh, we're living in a moment where it is really tough to get uh, some of the things you want, uh, whether it's by truck or plane or container ship, right? Uh, we have uh, been experiencing a pandemic-related product shortage of many things from computer chips to construction materials. And a lot of people thought, oh, it's going to be resolved by now, and we're still living through it. And I think we're learning the ripple effects of uh, disruption. I think we have, uh, I know I have, uh, taken for granted for a long time um, the ability just to order something that I need and just watch the goods arrive or go get something I need. And I don't think about factories. I don't think about container ships. I don't think about delivery trucks, unless they're driving too fast in my neighborhood. But we've been experiencing delays and product shortages and rising costs. They're hounding us and businesses. And we're confronted with an experience that we really haven't had to deal with in modern times. It was, it was rare. It's this. No stock available and no idea when it will come in. And not just supply chain issues, but labor shortages. Not enough people to make the goods and to move the goods and to sell the goods. And I don't know about you, but it seems like everything's overpriced and you feel it financially. Just try to go uh, buy or rent a place to live or get a car or even buy a meal or you know, take out a loan to, to get a tank of gas. But there's one thing that will never run dry, will never run out, will never be unavailable. You won't have to wait in line for it. You won't be told no. You won't have to prepay. God's superabundant grace. Superabundant grace, superabounding for all who call on the name of Christ. That God's grace is always plentiful for the believer. And isn't it true, though? Many times when something's really plentiful, we take it for granted, and we really don't want it, and we go after other things. God's grace is superabounding, hyperplentiful for every believer, and yet we go after other things. And, and the thing is, there, there's one factory that is not slowed down. It's the human idol factory heart that is operating at full capacity. We are engaged in the manufacture of untold depravities in our own hearts. It would probably make first century pagans that were worshiping a host of idols that they thought could bless them blush. A lot of people will find the magnetic pull of idolatry irresistible. 
So what can we do? We need Romans 5. We're going to walk through the whole chapter today. I told you we had a truckload of truth today. We're going to see grace abounding. And that should give you a big view of grace, a big view of God's grace. It overflows abundantly. There's a, no issues with supply and demand. And it never runs dry and always is on. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 5. First Thessalonians showed us, especially the very last verse, that grace regenerates and renews and reassures, reorients us to eternal realities, and that grace will one day lead us home as believers. Last week we saw in Titus 2, grace appearing. Grace appeared when Christ was born. Grace will appear when Christ returns. We saw that the, the grace of God, that, that phrase, the grace of God, is synonymous with the Son of God. It vividly points us to the transforming power of the gospel, of the first and second appearances, epiphanies of Christ. and It's just truth crying out to be communicated. We need this gospel message, and there's, there's implications on life now and future, and they're absolutely staggering. They really are staggering. Grace is summed up in the name and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. God is engaged right now in gracious, saving activity through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection and his present work and his promised return. Right now, he is acting in grace. He is bestowing his grace. This is what 1 Timothy 1, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us. Grace is here right now. God is working in grace right now. That God has saved believers and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That our salvation is anchored in the grace of God. And what it does is it prompts a holy life lived now by grace. The grace of Jesus, it teaches you, it, it empowers you to serve Jesus. It, the undeserved grace of Jesus sustains believers, but also shows every believer how to live for his glory and actually strengthens you to do it right now. This is what we see in this passage of Scripture. And we're just going to walk through the, the chapter and it's, Drenched in grace as it is, and, and we're going to glean the goodness, glean the goodness of how grace abounds. Specifically, I'll draw out three major hinge points that hold it all together, and if you want to just remember these words, it's access, it's gift, and it's rain. Not rain coming down from the sky, but the rain of a king. But those are really the, the hinge points in this chapter. You see all of these words in this chapter. Access being granted by God, a gift being given abundantly, and the reign of Christ governing actions of the believer. The first thing we see in the first 11 verses, 1 through 11, God in grace grants access to himself. Grace comes through faith. Grace, grace brings you into the family. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, believers, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ having been justified. That stresses a one-time legal declaration with continuing results, ongoing results. This is God's stamp of approval on the one who has faith in Christ. Justification. Now, justification is, is God not imputing your sin to you. 
Justification is the imputing of Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience to your account, is crediting to you what Christ did. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded where the first Adam, Adam, whose sin plunged us into a state of of guilt and misery, failed. The first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. And so you can become reconciled to God, reckoned as having kept God's covenant with Adam by the imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness to you by grace through faith in Christ. It's not because you lived a really exemplary life. It's not because you kept the law. The law was not meant to solve our sin problem, but to point it out to be a tutor, to drive us to the Savior. But here it says that justified, we have peace with God. We have access to His grace. Peace with God. It's not a subjective sense of calm. Like if you have kids in the home and you're like, well, the kids are napping. Well, there's no music blaring or there, there's no TV blaring in the background. There's some, you know, subjective, temporary calm. This is an objective reality that lasts because God had created, uh, declared war on every human because they had rebelled against him and his laws. And what justification says is the fruit is your war against God is over. The hostility is over. You are reconciled to God, and God did it on his own. He did it unilaterally. He acted unilaterally. The strongest did what the weak could not. So verse 2 says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're able to stand in the the presence of God because of his grace. We have access. There are plenty of places in this city that I can't get into. I don't have access. I don't have permission. But here we have access to the holiest place. and, And because of that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access. Used only three times in the New Testament, twice in Ephesians, once right here. What it refers to is the exclusive access to God that a believer has through Jesus Christ. Exclusive access. Which was impossible for Old Testament Jews. In Exodus chapter 19, we read that they even set limits for the people all around the mountain where God was speaking and said, take care that you do not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. But here, access to God is now a reality for those who believe, for all who believe. We are able to stand eternally secure in a permanent position, enjoying access to God by grace through Jesus. That's astounding. There are places in this world that you cannot get into. There are places in this world that are strictly off limits to almost everyone. I wouldn't suggest that you go to Nevada on vacation to Area 51. You may have heard of the secret U.S. military base in Nevada known as Area 51. No one knows for sure what is there. I'm guessing none of you have ever been there. I'm guessing none of you are ever planning to go. The U.S. military would like to keep it that way. Rumors about it goes on. There's talk, crazy talk of... Aliens and UFOs and what have you. But whatever goes on there, you do not have access. You cannot go 
And there's a number of signs surrounding the perimeter that authorizes deadly force for anyone who snoops around. You're not going there. In the Old Testament economy, it was the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. Access to the holy place was restricted. Only the high priest. It was covered by a veil, and no one was allowed to enter except the high priest only once a year. He would only enter once a year to offer the blood of sacrifice and incense. But that all changed when Christ appeared. Such that the writer of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Without sin going into the temptation, without sin coming out because he is the perfect, sinless Savior. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore with confidence draw near, because we have access to God, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the access that every believer has been granted, and often we take it for granted. But now we can do this because we have access now to God, and therefore we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and that hope is not a wishful thinking. That hope is not uncertain. That hope is guaranteed, and it's not yet seen. We will share in God's glory. In Romans 8, 29, it tells us that those whom God foreknew, he, would also pre- he has predestined to be, and here's what he will do, conform to the image of his Son. John says it this way, when we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is when he appears. Recipients of grace have secured access to God And then, this is the outflow, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, the very thing that we think is the worst in the world, we can actually rejoice in, knowing that it does something because of the grace of God, because of the access we have to God through grace. Suffering produces endurance. So your sufferings, your tribulations, if you're a Christian, and by the way, that, that word, suffering or tribulation, it means a pressure. It's like a press that you would use to squeeze oil out of olives or juice out of grapes. It's not the normal stress of living. This is troubles due to following Christ, that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that the grace of God, the access you have to God, produces blessings. There is an endurance. There is a perseverance. God perseveres us. God keeps you going under extreme pressure and the weight, and, and you don't quit. Richard Baxter said, afflictions are God's most effectual means to keep us from losing our way to our rest. That though the word and spirit do the main work, suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the word has easier entrance. You listen to the word when you're going through pain. Verse 4 tells us endurance produces character. 
And character produces hope. And the character here is proven character, literally proof of Christian character that, that, you know, in those days they would test metals to see that they were pure. They do it today as well to determine the purity, see if gold is, if that's really gold. And the proof of the grace of God giving you access by faith to Christ is Christian character. Verse 5, the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given us. The love of God poured out lavished, poured out, overflowing our hearts. Our love for him is evidence that we belong to him who first loved us. It's overflowing. The love is overflowing. Almost every day I fill up a big water bottle and I'll, I'll take it to a sink or you know, faucet and put it under there. And every time, here's, I do this almost every time, I say, well, this is a big water bottle. I'm going to go ahead and fill this up and then go do something else really quick and see if when I come back it's not filled up yet. And every, every day... It, it happens that it's always overflowing when I get back. Just overflowing. Just, and and the, the love of God being poured out in our hearts is lavishly poured out and is to overflowing such that we love him. And verse 6 tells us that it, it didn't happen because we were somehow love worthy. It, it didn't happen because somehow we had a good record. It, it says in verse 6 that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, at the time of God's choosing, we were helpless, unregenerate, spiritually dead, couldn't help ourselves. And at the right moment, the moment that God chose, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and it's not based on your worthiness. It was at, at our worst, God did his best. Verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, and though perhaps, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. We were neither righteous nor good. Jesus didn't die for the righteous because there's none righteous. Yet Christ gave himself for us. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God justified by his blood. Blood here means a violent death. He bled in his death. It fulfilled the Old Testament sacrifice. The Savior's blood uh, signifies his death and atoning work at the cross. And it says, how much more? His grace greater than our sin saves us from wrath. Jesus took the full weight of our Sin upon himself took the full weight of God's wrath in our place. It was poured out on him. It will not touch you if you are in Christ. Verse 10, if we, while we were sinners, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, you see this much more, so much greater. Grace is abounding. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Saved by his life. Consider it with me. The resurrected Savior now secures you forever if you're a believer in Jesus. The lion is alive. No enemy can prevail. He protects his children by his power. Just like, think about it. If you're a parent, you would protect your kids or your grandkids to the nth degree. And here is God. Here is Jesus protecting his children by his power. We shall be saved by his life. And more than that, verse 11, more than that, it just keeps going. But wait, there's more. It's just overflowing. More than that. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
through whom we have now received reconciliation between us and God. Access is open to every believer. In Isaiah 57, God says, this is what I say. I'm holy. My name is holy. And I dwell in a high and holy place. And I also dwell with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. See, access to God does not make you proud. Access to God does not make you look at others with disdain. Access to God makes you humble. Until grace breaks into your heart, you're oblivious to your need. You're, you're blind to your need, and you think that your goodness is enough. But God's grace is sufficient. It is enough, and it brings you into close relationship with God such that you become humble in your heart towards God and towards other people. God in grace grants access. Grace brings you into the family. It's the first hinge point in this passage. Next, in verses 12 to 17, you see God in grace gives abundantly. You'll see the word free gift often. Grace abounds through Jesus Christ. God blesses us immensely in Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. Adam's sin affected many. Jesus' death provided for many. Just as sin came in, sin entered into the human race. We are sinners by nature. Adam gave all his descendants the sinful nature he had due to disobedience. And from conception, it is impossible for you to please God. Satan, the father of sin, brought temptation to Adam and Eve. It came through the one man. When Adam sinned, all mankind sinned. Sin passed to his descendants, resulting in death. Originally, there was no death. Adam and Eve would have lived forever had they not sinned. But originally, no death. Now, spiritual death. Now, physical death. Now, eternal death, the second death. All because we sinned in Adam. We are sinners. Get it straight. And sin was in the world, verse 13, before the law was given. Oh, it made you more aware, but it was in there, and sin is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? It's not imputed. From Adam to Moses, there was no law yet, but they were still sinners under the wrath of God. Verse 14 tells us, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, who were dying for their sins, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It maybe wasn't as bad as Adam's sin. It was bad enough to send them to hell. And Adam was a type of the one who was to come who would be able to open access to heaven for us. Death reigned. Without the law, death was universal. All from Adam to Moses was subject to death. They were sinning against God's holiness. But there was one to come, Christ. And so verse 15 begins to speak of the gift, the free gift. That's what a gift is. It is free. It is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Many died from Adam's sin, but much more. Christ's one act of redemption far greater than Adam's one act of sin, one act of ruin. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. The gift, it's because of the gift. Salvation by grace. 
There was judgment from one offense. There was condemnation. God's guilty verdict was put on all of us, and, and it was the opposite of justification. It brings condemnation. It was because of many sins, your sins, my sins, everybody's sins heaped as higher than Tower of Babel, the condemnation through one sin, and Christ appeared, and he saves the elect from condemnation of many sins. They are justified. Everyone doesn't get saved. Those who believe get saved. Verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, there it is again, it's overflowing, grace abounding, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The believer will reign in righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigned. Those who receive the free gift of God, though, reign with Christ. Adam's sin brought universal death. Christ's sacrifice brings salvation to all who believe. The gift of righteousness. It will, you will, it will reign in life. Because unlike Adam, Christ did what he intended. He did what he came for. And he gives spiritual life. In Christ, we reign in righteousness. Every believer. You have this contrast between Adam, who brought sin and death to all, with Christ, who died for sin, to give God's gift of grace to all who believe. Adam was the first lawbreaker. He ate the forbidden fruit. He brought sin and death to all after him. Jesus, the perfect Savior, paid for sin, opened the way for all who would believe to reign with him forever. It's a free gift. You know what that means? You must receive it. The free gift for those with faith in Christ. Receive it. You receive the free gift by grace through faith because of God's kindness. If right now God is opening your heart to the gospel message, do not resist that anymore. In fact, right now, if he's opening your heart to the gospel message, you don't want to resist it. You want to run to Christ. As Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God in grace grants access. Grace brings you into the family. He blesses immensely, gives abundantly in grace, the free gift. But we must focus on this third hinge point that we find in verses 18 to 21. And it brings it all together. God in grace governs actions. We reign through righteousness. Grace reigns through righteousness in us. Grace becomes our identity. That the, the reign of Christ reorients your allegiance in life. You're no longer first. Jesus is. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. One man's righteous act. Christ's obedience, the greatest demonstration shown in the de his death at the cross in our place. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see the impact of Adam's disobedience, all born after Adam, born into sin. We sin by nature. Between Adam and Moses, there was no law. They sinned, but sin was not being calculated as it was under the law. But many will be made righteous. There's a legal status. There's a justification leading to life, leading to sanctification. It transforms sinners. It's the result of redemption. Look at verse 20, the first part of verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in. The law entered in. Now, I want to remind you of something. The Mosaic law was not flawed. 
It did exactly what God designed it to do. It caused man's sin to increase. What does that mean, to increase? Does it mean that people were sinning more than before? No, it means they were more aware of their sin than before. It made you aware of sin and the inability to keep God's perfect standard. It was a tutor to drive us to Christ. When, when God gave the law to Moses, it changed the relationship between man's sin and God. Now everything seems much worse, and this is how God intended it. Sinners by nature become lawbreakers. The existence of God's commands criminalized sin at a new level. That Adam sinning brought all into a state of sinfulness under the penalty of death, and it made Christ's atonement necessary. He had to go to the cross to die for our sins. But why give the law so that sin would abound? Why give the law that sin would increase? People will even ask this question. Did God want more sin? Which is a ridiculous question, but it is an interesting one to ask because it says the law caused sin to abound. The law caused an increase of sin. Here's what it did. It caused sin to be known. It revealed violations against God's righteous character, against his holiness. And see, the spike in the, in the, in the awareness of sin's magnitude stuck out like a sore thumb. Sin increased. Now, again, it doesn't mean that people started sinning more frequently. It means it brought the true nature and magnitude of sin to the forefront so that sin would be seen for what it really is, a heinous affront to the holiness of God. Sin was counted against us as individual acts of rebellion against a holy God. People were sinning just as much as they always have, but they realized the depth and the weight of that sin. The law was not a cure. It was like an x-ray. What happened is that when the law came in, the true value of God's holiness and the true repugnancy of our sin was then attached. Think about this. Let's say you have a vase. There's a vase. You're in someone's house. Let's say you're in someone's house, and, and you're, or you're in a store, a really expensive store. Let's put it that way. You're in a really expensive store, and you see a vase, and you don't think it's very expensive. You think, well, that's a cheap vase. Who cares about that? And somehow you, you bump into it and, it, and it breaks on the ground into like a lot of pieces. You're like, well, there's a lot of pieces on the ground. Well, I'm going to have to pay for that. And then you look down on the ground and there's a price tag on one of those pieces. And you pick it up and you're like, well, that's a lot of zeros. The value becomes apparent. Here's what God did. And he did it in holiness. He willed this increase, this increase of sin in order to bring about good. See, the law and its provocation of sin brought condemnation. It, it shone the light on our guilt. And, and here's what God had done since before the foundation of the world. He had ordained a solution. Last part of verse 20, where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it's very interesting. Some translations will translate it where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And it makes you maybe think that maybe it's the same Greek word, but it's not. There's two Greek words here that are often translated both abounded. But it's interesting the way it goes. First, 
The first word is, it means this, this increase, almost a numerical increase, that sins increased because people became more aware of them, like they were getting counted more. But secondly, where grace abounded, that's the overflow. That's having more than enough. There's even a prefix added, which means super excess. That no matter the depth of a sinner's guilt, God's grace is more. God's grace is sufficient to save. That's why it could be said that that sin increased, but grace abounded. The different words. Sin shown to be what it truly is. But grace is greater than all of our sin. It overflows. Where sin increased, grace overflowed. We speak of sin increasing and people becoming more aware that they are sinful. And then you think of the the grace of God that overflows. It's more than enough. As one thing increases, there's more of the other. There's always more grace. It goes along with what the writer of Hebrews was consistently saying about how Jesus is greater and stronger and better than anyone or anything. So it is with his grace. It is greater and stronger and better. It is more plentiful than anything. It will never run dry. It always meets the need. It's never out of stock. It will always prevail. In fact, when we were in 1 Thessalonians, there's that prayer at the end of chapter 3 that uses the same two words, increase and abound. There was, it was a prayer. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. May you be more aware that as God loved you, you need to love others, and may that just be more in front of mind for you, but also may it just overflow with a, a good flood of blessing to other people because God has overflown, it over, overflowed his grace in your heart. This is extraordinary, and it can only be accomplished by God. Human sin increased, grace super increased, grace hyper abounded, hyper increased. God's grace abounded more. It can't be overwhelmed by your sinfulness. The more you sin, the more grace God gives. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about, if you're a believer, you regret your sin, don't you? Or else you're probably not a believer. You need to regret your sin. I mean, when, you, when you're saved by Jesus, you're like, you, you even rehearse old sins that you committed because you feel so bad about it. It seems so far worse than when you were committing them when you weren't aware. But you confess your sins and you receive forgiveness and the Lord forgives and, and you know that you're never beyond his grace. The law increased sin, but where sin abounded, grace, more powerful than sin, abounded all the more. Grace is more powerful than any explosive, the most powerful explosive. It's more stronger than P-E-T-N. It's stronger than T-N-T. It's stronger than nitro. God uses his grace to overcome sin. The more you sin, the more grace God gives. I don't know any believer who would walk away from that statement and say, well, you know, 
Sounds like God likes sin. Sounds like I want to do more sin so I can get more grace. That's blasphemous. In fact, it's, it's addressed in chapter 6, verse 1, and, and then Paul just launches in to a, a whole uh, litany of chapters about sanctification and how when you're saved by Jesus, you want to live a holy life. You don't want to live a sinful life anymore. You know you were bought from the slave market of sin. You know you were granted access. You know that you have the free gift of salvation. You're under the reign of Christ. You don't want to keep going against him. And so Paul in chapter 6 deals with a common abuse saying, well, sin must be good since it provides God more opportunities to show me grace. No. The question comes, if grace abounds where sin abounds, should we sin freely for grace to be poured out even more? And the emphatic answer is, by no means. There's never a moment where we would want to think that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And, and Romans 6 goes into, you, you're a, you used to be a slave to sin. Now you're to be a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ. The ironic thing is when you become a slave of Christ, it is the most free life imaginable. You're free. Grace reigning through righteousness, living under the lordship of Christ, the reign of Christ. The reign of righteousness. That's what we need to focus on, on the lordship of Christ. We reign in righteousness with Christ. He, he works in us for his glory, and we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians 2 says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling before a holy God as God works in you to will and do his good pleasure. You see, all true holiness of life comes from God's transforming work of grace in the heart of a believer. He has given unmerited favor. He acts on our behalf, and it is powerful. It changes your affections. It does things in your life. It inspires you. It moves you to praise the glories of God's grace in Christ and have a life that reflects that. John Wesley put it this way, whoever would reign with Christ in heaven must have Christ reigning in him on earth. Think about the implications with me for a moment. According to these three hinge points even of access and gift and reign, let me just give you quickly three ideas to think about as, as, as we process this. First, grace is greater than all your sin, so your identity then in Christ is fixed. You have access. You know what Paul didn't do? He never whitewashed his life before he came to Christ. He didn't try to pretend that he didn't persecute the church or that he wasn't a blasphemer that ravaged the church or uh, that dragged believers from houses to prison. He gave the before and after pictures, but he didn't do it to shine the light on him, but to praise the glories of God's grace. He wanted to magnify God's grace. All your identity is now fixed in Christ. You're now an ambassador for Christ if you're a Christian. You represent Christ. This is the nature of God's hyper-plentiful grace. It overflows. It's not just sufficient. It's not just plentiful. It's exactly what you need, and it's beyond plentiful. The hyper-plentiful grace of God, his absolute perfections, make his hyper-grace very plentiful because it redeems imperfect people, and it sanctifies you and I. Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We live a life set apart, and grace is the driver 
And Jesus inspires godly living. This is what Jesus does. You want to please him. You're no sidecar spectator in that, in that realm. You're not a sidecar spectator. You are a full participant. You, are, you, you live empowered with the life of Jesus. That's why verse 17 says, we will reign in life. You're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, when the world sees you, they see whatever they see. Whatever lenses they're using, they're going to see whatever they see. But when God sees you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. You don't make yourself like him. And yet, you are not not working. You are not not working. You must be fully engaged in the process. You're no sidecar spectator. What did Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15.10? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So you live a life where you say, I'm going to trust Jesus. My will is to do his will because he changed my will. I want to be yielded. I want to be surrendered. I want to love him. I want to want what he wants. I want to live for his glory, work for his glory. This is the testimony of scripture. A changed hearts. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. It's not by your works that you're justified and made holy. But it is by your life that you will be recognized as a follower of Christ. You have a new commander a new set of clothes you need to put on, a new country, a new currency you're dealing with. You have a living hope that drives your everyday life, and it shows. And you have to be vigilant. You have to be watchful. You don't want to fall back into old ways. There's, you now have the expulsive power of a new affection. Grace is greater than all your sins. Your identity is now fixed in Christ. You have access Secondly, grace abounds such that you live in ongoing confession and repentance. You, you've received a gift, and the gift doesn't make you proud, it makes you humble. The, the awareness of your sin, that it is so putrid, that you want to take the garbage out in your life, you want to kick sin to the curb in your life, you want to acknowledge Christ's lordship and kingship and rulership, and it drives you so that when you're tempted, you say no. By God's grace and for his glory, in his strength. When you're caught, you want to break free. You want to flee. You want to run. When you're faced with lies, you, head, you just face them head on and reject them. You traffic in truth, not lies. Grace in your heart prevents you from abusing grace in your head. Delivers you from making grace permission to sin. Teaches you, teaches you. Grace teaches us. It doesn't eliminate ungodliness and worldly lusts. It leads you to deny them, to reject them, to kick them off the premises. Grace never allows you to be shameful, to be pot-shotting or unreasoning anger and clamor and slander. You confess your sins when you're a believer. That's our honest life. I, I talk to people every week who say, I am stumbling, I am falling. I love Jesus and I'm not doing the perfect life and I appreciate it because that's our honest life. And I'm living the same life, and I'm struggling daily like you as well. And we, how often do we try to be self-willed? We need to seek the will of God. We're either going to help people or hurt people. I think you'll know if you're on track, if you're helping and being a blessing, not a burden. There are eternal souls at stake. 
If you have never turned from your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus, you need to now. You need to live in that reality. And if you are somehow playing Christianity and it's not the tune that God's playing in the Bible, you need to turn from that and confess and repent. It's, isn't it ironic that slavery to Christ brings true freedom? Grace is greater than all your sins, so your identity is fixed in Christ. You have access, and, and grace abounds such that you live in ongoing confession and repentance because of the gift you've received. And last, grace abounds such that the truth permeates your life, and you live in unquestioned obedience to Jesus who reigns forever. I know that sometimes sincere Christians worry about if they're falling into old ways or if they're being legalistic or doing things for the right reasons, but the people I'm most concerned about are the ones that have seemed to have no clue on how they're coming across. They seem to have a, a calloused heart. You know, um, I don't know when the custom began, I really don't, but we wear deodorant. Smart people, wise people, they wear deodorant. And once in a while, once in a while you run across someone who doesn't seem to be aware of their need for deodorant. And it's startling, it's off-putting, it's unpleasant. People try to pretend like the stench isn't there. And hardly anyone wants to be truthful about it to them. When you live under the reign of Christ, you know how putrid your sin is. And you know that God will break your pride. You know, Jesus said something interesting. He said, you'll know them by their works. You know who he was talking about? Those who are false. You'll know them who are false by their works. You flip that. You also will know. If you're rooted in Christ, good will flow. That's what God does. What it looks like in your life when you surrender to God is God, who works all things after the counsel of his will, works in you to will and do his good pleasure. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, will, will continue it, will, will finish it. Grace reigns through righteousness. The reign of Christ acknowledged in your life, it's like putting on corrective lenses and you see clearly because of the word of God. Because your sin is strong, but grace is stronger. Beautiful irony. You know something? Jesus never used the word grace. Charis, he never used that word. He just lived it. There was a woman caught in adultery, and the law said stone her. He had the legal right to bury her under rocks. Those who hated grace demanded it. Fire in their eyes, calling for her death. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That's grace. Lazarus dies. Martha meets him on the road. Mary confronts him in the house. They both accuse him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And with that accusation, he calls Lazarus back to life. That's grace. It leads you and I to, to live and choose as we live to worship God, to walk by faith welcome others, to give without measure, to point others to Christ, all those things. And didn't I tell you that this passage would unload a truckload of truth on us? You want to live with a big view of grace. 
need those hinge points. If you just want to remember this, access, gift, and reign. If you want to remember God's grace abounding, remember those three words, access, gift, and reign. God in grace grants access to believers and gives abundantly and governs our actions all for his glory. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that you yourself grant to us access and abundance and it is you that wants to govern our actions. May we be under you, all of grace, under your grace and present ourselves to you as obedient slaves. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work in and through us for your glory as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you're able to be close, singing His Mercy is More. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. you to get an Easter invite bag that has summer calendar Easter and pray about who you would give those to and invite people uh, with the gospel and encourage you if you're available third hour go hear the office uh, speak of their ministry and uh, we're going to close with Titus 2 11 to 14 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, may it be true in our lives as we yield to you Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.